If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Powered by Righteous Media. What's up, guys? Welcome to episode 14 of the Firefighters Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Serra. Well, unfortunately, I'm coming to you with more bad news this week as we lost three firefighters down in Baltimore City. Firefighter Kenny Lacayo, Firefighter Kelsey Sadler, and Lieutenant Paul Butram all lost their lives when a building collapsed in a row frame fire. Um, the reports aren't out yet, so I'm not really going to speculate on exactly what happened. Um, but from what I've seen in the pictures, it looks like there was a heavy fire load in a row frame building. Um, I'm sure you've seen those old Baltimore row frame buildings. So it looked like heavy fire and there was a collapse of all floors uh, in the pictures I could see. It looked like from the roof down, uh, the floors collapsed. Uh, I'm not sure if it was a pancake collapse or you know, if they staggered one at a time. Um, I'm not really sure. But all I know is that they were operating on the first floor and four members became trapped. Um, three of them have passed away. So obviously there'll be a lot to learn from this um, as the investigations come out. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that firefighting is dangerous, right? As Captain Patty Brown once famously said, you could do everything right on this job and still get killed. So, you know, I don't really know what happened. Um, they're saying that there may have been a fire in that building a few years ago that weakened the structure. Um, add that to the heat intensity that we see nowadays you know in the last 50 years we've started using petroleum products in basically everything in our home so the fires burn hotter and quicker uh, so firefighters have less time when they're in there you know and, and with the bunker gear um, you know you don't feel the heat as much so you don't really notice when it's getting hot like you used to I'm not saying that's what happened here I'm just saying in general um, so we send our thoughts and our prayers with them well, with a bit of good news, firefighter John McMaster has been upgraded to fair condition, and he's conscious and alert in the shock trauma department down in uh, Baltimore City. So, you know, there's some hope, and we wish him well, and we hope that he recovers fully. Um, but we know that he's going to be dealing with this and living with this for the rest of his life, as are all the members uh, of the fire department and EMS who responded there. Um, so another tough day in the fire service. This year's not starting off too well, uh, but, you know, still got to put those boots on, still got to show up to work tomorrow, and still got to keep doing what we do. But uh, just another reminder that you got to talk about it, right? Uh, yesterday was, uh, you know, well, Bell, let's talk about it or whatever it was going around Twitter. But uh, I feel like that should be every day. You know, it shouldn't take a hashtag uh, to get you to realize that you need help. Um, and it shouldn't take a hashtag for you to reach out to your friends to let them know that they can talk to you. Uh, that's what we're supposed to do, right? 
it shouldn't be something that has to be said. You know, I, I'm lucky. I have some friends that if I have something to say, I can just call them and start saying it. They don't need to prompt me, or prod me. Um, you know, those friends are hard to find, but, uh, you know, we all have them. So go, go talk to those people. All right. Frankie's back this week with another episode of Frankie's Firehouse Feats. She's also on Twitter now at Sarah underscore Frankie. So check her out. She's excited to be back and uh, she does a great job as always. Also have some more good news on the hockey front. Uh, My son had his first tournament this weekend and they won and he did a great job. Uh, No goals yet, but he's getting there. You know, he's working hard, he's getting better and, and he's having fun. So as far as I'm concerned, that's all that matters is that he loves playing the sport uh, that I love also. So kudos to him and his team um, and to many more. This week's guest is a friend of mine, um, someone I lobbied in Washington with. Uh, she's a fighter um, of a different type of fire. Uh, she's, she lobbied with me for the 9-11 Health Care and Compensation Acts. Um, she represents the 19,000 school children that were caught up in the hazmat zone uh, created by the World Trade Center collapse. Um, if you don't know the story, give Lila a listen. You know, a lot, there's a lot of talk going around right now about about the children and, and schools and their safety. But uh, we forget what happened 20 years ago to all those school kids. You know, they were sent back to schools that were covered in dust, that weren't properly cleaned, you know, and even the schools that were cleaned, um, they weren't cleaned very well, you know. Lila's going to tell you a little bit about her school, which was just a couple blocks away from the Trade Center, but I can tell you from personal experience, you know, uh, I worked in Engine Company 216, and our rig was was there during the collapse, um, and it wasn't cleaned, and it came back to us, and we wrote on it. And eventually, you know, maybe six months later, the fire department made us send out the rig for a proper decon, you know, because every time we'd hit a bump, dust would fall out of the cracks. You know, it was, it it, it was a dust mobile. And so we sent it out for decon and we got it back and they kept it for a few days and and they claimed to do a deep cleaning. But uh, we quickly found out that that wasn't the case. You know, we, you could slam your hand on the, on the ceiling in the cab and dust would fall down. You know, I remember the chauffeur had to change a light bulb and when he pulled the light bulb out, he just pulled out handfuls of dust and debris. And and this was after it was cleaned. So, you know, that stuff was everywhere. We talk about it in this interview. Um, and it, I think it's a big reason why 9-11 illnesses are so widespread because we didn't, not only did we not take the proper precautions when we were there, but we didn't really, you know, secure the scene properly and we didn't really um decon the scene properly and you know now we're seeing the the results of of that hastiness uh to get the country up and going again um so i'm happy to have lila on she's pretty badass and uh give her a listen you know she's she's the type of leader that we need and she's a great leader for her community with that said i'm just gonna jump right into it here she is lila nordstrom We're proud to have a new sponsor for the show, Rocky Boots. Since 1932, Rocky Boots has had a proud legacy building boots for the men and women who serve and protect our country. And in January, Rocky is introducing their fire boots. 
As with all Rocky boots, these are high quality, comfortable, and built to last. Plus, these boots are NFPA certified. Located in an American small town, Rocky has volunteer firefighters in their company, and their focus is on footwear that's innovative and durable. Rocky is currently looking for firefighters to wear test their boots. If you're interested, reach out through any of Rocky Boots' social media channels, Facebook and Twitter, at Rocky Gear. And be sure to check out the great deals at RockyBoots.com. Rocky Boots, rugged innovation since 1932. Welcome, everybody, to the Firefighters Podcast. This week, I have someone who's not a firefighter, um, <laughs> but someone who I've worked with on behalf of firefighters and uh, the victims of 9-11, uh, Miss Lila Nordstrom. Lila, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, I wanted to have you on since I started the show um, because I think you're great at what you do. Um, and I think your voice is, is something that needs to be heard. And I think there's a lot uh, that gets lost when we talk about 9-11. Um, so I'm hoping you can fill that in, uh, especially for those in the first responder community. Um, as we saw in the last couple of weeks, uh, when we lost all those children in those fires, um, it's kind of our responsibility to take care of the children, right? Like we always, we take those losses the hardest. Um, and I think that's kind of why we, we do what we do. Like my favorite part of being a fireman was the little kids waving at the fire truck when you drove, it's like the greatest (laughs) feeling in the world, but really that's, I mean, we're there to help all people, but, but the, the helpless and the, and the children, are our main responsibility. And uh, when it comes to 9-11, the children are not being taken care of, um, which is not what we do. So Lila's going to tell us what's going on and what we can do to help. So Lila, let's jump right in. Absolutely. Um, So there were probably about 50,000 students and young people who were in the exposure zone on and after 9-11. So it's a huge number of people who only make up maybe, you know, like a sixth of the total population that was down there. There's obviously a lot of civilians that got impacted by 9-11. And I think even that is not something that a lot of people are aware of. I mean, I live in California, so I am aware of what the rest of the country says about the 9-11 health issue when they, you know, haven't been exposed to New York media all of this time. And what they say is that, you know, they have never heard about these people who lived and worked downtown Um, A lot of them, when I say that I work on this issue, their first question is, was your dad a first responder? They assume that there's no reason that like a young woman might be involved in this cause. And I think that has a lot to do with the way that we frame um, our responsibility to victims in general. I mean, I think people can understand why, you know, we feel that we have a public responsibility to first responders because they are working on behalf of the public. So of course, you know, we should absolutely be taking care of their health. We should absolutely be focusing on making sure that their jobs can be done safely. Um, but you know, when it comes to community members, we often feel or speak like we don't really have a responsibility to members of a community who are also, you know, affected by poor policy decisions and affected by, you know, decisions that prioritize the health of the economy over the health of individual people. And that's problematic in a country that doesn't provide health care as a right. You know, it's really problematic when you, you know, talk about sending children back to school because maybe it's safe, but you're not going to provide for their care in the long term. So if they do get sick, they're sort of on their own. And that's kind of what happened after 9-11. I mean, I was a high school student on 9-11. I was a student at a school that was three blocks from ground zero. 
we got sent back to school on October 9th, which is, I mean, the fires weren't even out on October 9th. October 9th was basically, you know, the, the middle of the search and rescue operation still. Yeah. And they, you know, they decided to reopen our school. The decision was really based on a need to stop the economy from freaking out, you know. They're, they're, they were looking for acts of symbolism that would make it seem like New York was getting back on its feet because what's more distressing to the economy as a whole than the idea that Wall Street is going to be closed for the foreseeable future. So they marched this, you know, ver- this, this uh, special gifted and talented high school back um, in front of news cameras back into our building three blocks from the World Trade Center. And then left us there in the middle of this huge environmental disaster for months, all the while denying that there would be any long-term health consequences. Now, of course we know, and we know because of data that was collected on first responders that there were widespread health consequences to everyone who was in that community after 9-11. Our exposures in particular were very similar to a lot of the responders who came to help with the, um, with the actual cleanup operation. You know, it's, it, we were there for three months of fires. We, you know, had to walk through an area that was close to the public to get in and out of our school building. On my first day back in school, we had to show our IDs to something like five police checkpoints, which <laughs> maybe is not an indication that that's an area that's safe for minors right. and people without protective gear. <laughs> right. Um, but so there was sort of, a, you know, there was no responsibility taken for our health in the immediate aftermath. And, you know, it was a complicated time. And I think people were not necessarily thinking straight in general. But um, then when it became clear that that would have long term health consequences, much like with first responders, it was like suddenly no one had any responsibility for anything. Um, and we had an even harder time sort of proving our need and showing that we were um that, you know, showing, showing that we needed the services because no one had even collected any data on us. That was, you know, I I've learned a lot about the politics of uh, research and medical data in, in, in doing this work. And, you know, what's so interesting is the, the way that we determine need is based on the way that like research funding is, you know, apportioned. And of course the FDNY was keeping track of people's health. So of course, the FDNY was one of the first entities that could prove that there were health consequences coming out of 9-11 and well, of course, the politics to that as well. <laughs> right. But, but, but that's what leadership is. And to go exactly. back to what you said that, that people weren't thinking clearly, but, but that's your job as a leader, as a, right. as a, mayor, as a mayor, as a governor or whatever is to think clearly when, when the shit hits the fan, that's, that's, that's what you get paid for. It's you're not, wild you're the- to me how bad adults in charge of things are, about the, about seeing long-term consequences of literally right. any decision they make. I, I feel like I, it's like uh, George Costanza running out of the room, screaming fire as he's pushing kids. Right. Uh, <laughs> that, that seems like how our government responded after 9-11. They were just kind of, they Absolutely. freaked out. And then to, 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 to make it look like they weren't freaking out, they made horrible decisions that are now costing thousands more lives needlessly. Um, for all the reasons you just said, opening up Wall Street and and all that uh, yeah. pomp and circumstance that really was it was for it was all for a sort of symbolic victory that had nothing to do with what was happening on the ground. I mean, it was symbolism. No, and now on the back end, uh, you know, the money that they might have saved by opening up Wall Street a month or two earlier, how much is it costing them on the back right. end with this healthcare and compensation act exactly that we fought so. <laughs> hard for um anyway (laughs) so 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 let's stick with that with the fdny we 
we knew, I mean, not we, Dr. Kelly and Dr. Brazant knew what to do because we had gone through this already right. uh, with the phone company fire in 1975. Right. So you're they, talking about occupational hazards being part, you know, a career where occupational hazards are like a part of the job. So there's already a little bit right. of infrastructure for that kind of research. And there's already a baseline because they make exactly. us do a, 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 a yearly medical. So they already had our baseline medicals. So they essentially in October probably when you were going back to school, they were sending us to Metro Tech to get another medical, which is where people like me found out that <laughs> life's about to change. Um, so yeah, so the national program doesn't function anywhere near the way that the yeah. FDNY does. I mean, logistically, it is a lot harder, right? Um, so what do you guys yeah. do to get in touch? Because it wasn't just your school, so people know. Right. It, was, it was all the schools south of Canal Street there's 19,000 kids believed to have been. Yeah, there's 20, so there's there are two boundaries. The health program's boundary is Houston Street. And so okay. I think that's where the 19,000 figures from. And then below Canal Street, there's you know still thousands of school children who were attending school below Canal Street. And that's the VCF boundary. So okay. we, in addition to just the complication of dealing with the survivor health program, have two incredibly complicated boundaries to try to explain to people, which is so typical of the federal government to have created that additional burden. Um, but basically, so there are two kind of wings of the health program um, in the Zadroga Act. And one is for first responders. And that program provides care at no cost for the, you know, for the covered conditions that the program, um, well, that the program covers. Um, and that care is provided as the, the government acts as a first payer for that care. So if you go to the doctor and you have, I don't know, a lung condition and you're a first responder and you're in the responder program, whether or not you're in the New York program or the national program, your care is covered by the World Trade Center Health Program as a first payer. If you're a survivor, you not only have to meet the criteria of having one of those conditions, because unlike in the responder program, there's no proactive monitoring in the survivor program. So in the survivor program, you have to already be sick to get into the program. You have to kind of like self-identify as sick somehow. You get one free screening. And then after right. that, there's no more free screening. So if you're not sick, like good luck to you. Mm -hmm. um, but then in addition to that, the program acts as a second payer. So you have to have primary insurance and then the program becomes a second payer on that primary insurance, which means that the administrative challenges of being in the survivor program are massive. But then there's also this issue of where the data that they use to link the conditions comes from. It comes from responder cohorts, which means it comes from cohorts that are large, that are almost, you know, 90% male uh, cohorts that are, were all adults at the time of the attacks. And because of that, conditions like developmental health conditions and women's health conditions are not covered by the program. There's no meaningful effort going on to collect data on a lot of those conditions. And so not only do we have these like additional barriers to getting into the program and we have these administrative hurdles once we're in the program, but we also oftentimes see that the conditions that affect people in my cohort aren't covered in the first place. And there's like no meaningful attempt to gather the data that would ultimately lead them to be covered. And in the case of like reproductive health concerns, which is disproportionately a survivor concern because we're disproportionately female and also disproportionately young, right. um, you know, we, we're going to miss the whole window of being able to treat those conditions because by the time we have any data on them, no one's going to be of reproductive age anymore. So, I mean, so you like, feel like that's their, that's their point though. That's, yes. <laughs> I feel like that's their tactic is totally they, they, they're waiting us out. They, I think they would, they, they were waiting us out at every step and they didn't expect more of us yeah. to keep coming down there to fight with them. I think. Agreed. 
Well, and when you think about just like the burden it places on even responder victims of this to have to have spent 20 years, like, you know, all of us lugging ourselves down to Washington all the time, it, you know, with our health conditions in tow and to essentially have to perform like political theater to get noticed. I mean, that's such an unfair burden to place on any part of the victims community for 9-11, let alone, you know, people that we, you know, imperiled via like poor government policy in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so that's the challenge, right? I, I mean, I've read a lot of these articles about the women's health and I mean, it's unfortunate that there weren't more female first responders. Um, yeah. so we could have the government already gathering this information, uh, which, but so, so what do we do? How do we get it on the bill? How do people out there help us with this? I think that there are a few things that we can do. One is that you know, and this is something that the survivor community has been applying pressure um, on the federal government for a long time about, but there needs to, I think, be uh, more sort of public outcry about the fact that the research funding that goes to this issue almost exclusively goes to responder cohort studies. Right. Um, you know, we've for a long time been trying to put together um, like a sort of millennial cohort for even just the World Trade Center Health Registry, which is just a self-report study. They closed that study to new participants back in 2006, which means that a lot of young people were at college or out of town by the time that they find out, found out that this was even a possibility. And so very few of us are in the World Trade Center Health um, Health Registry, which is the only cohort of survivor data essentially <laughs> that right. exists. Um, so, and you know, there's there's been attempts to put together cohorts. They've been scuttled every time. There are calls for research funding that NIOSH puts out that um, you know they always claim because there's not meaningful cohorts of young people, they um, can't you know they don't award money to those studies because they're not as rigorous as the studies on responders, but. I think at a certain point, we have to recognize that disaster healthcare is not a science. It's kind of an art, you know, I mean, it's not yeah. just a science. And sometimes you have to put together imperfect cohorts in order to get the kind of data you need to actually help people. I mean, I always I, I was on the science and technical advisory committee for the World Trade Center Health Program for a long time. And the thing that I found myself having to continually remind everyone, and that's, by the way, that that's a body that meets publicly, that accepts public comments. Um, so that's something that people can participate in. But I constantly had to remind people that this was not just, you know, a, the World Trade Center Health Program is not just like a fun research study being done for the science, that it actually has to treat people. And that because of that, we can't always use really rigorous scientific, you know, methods to decide what is and is not going to be covered because, you know, people's real lives are at stake in the, you know, in this program. It's not, it's not just like we're doing it because it's fun to know the science. And, you know, it's so frequently people seem to forget that about these kinds of programs. And I think we're going to see the same obstacles come up in the aftermath of COVID where if and when there is some sort of federal, you know, response to the to the long COVID crisis, to the fact that this is going to imperil people, you know, this is going to disable and imperil people in the long term um, as a result of poor government policy in the same, you know, in a very similar way. Um, then the next obstacle course is going to be people saying that we don't have enough data to prove linkages between X, Y, and Z conditions. And, you know, in the aftermath of a disaster, you can't, you don't have the luxury of having perfect science. You, you should always prioritize helping people over 
perfect science. And I think that's not something that the health program has been really effective at doing, but it's something that with public pressure, they could be encouraged to do. And then I think the other thing is just that, you know, we need to make sure the program gets, you know, gets uh, refunded, that the the funding for that program is in Build Back Better. I don't know what's going to happen to it, but it needs to happen. I am so over them bringing it back up every few, like it's, can we never just have a rest? Well, that's, we never well, that's what I've been saying. That's what I've been saying. And and that's what I want to touch on something that you just said, but I, I do want to put a pin in this because this is yes. something I've been wanting to talk to you specifically about. Um, but when it comes to that disaster science, why aren't we just using basic science, which is I, a common denominator, which is, I what I, which is what I've been saying about the bunker gear causing cancer. Well, if, right. if, if I work in New York city and I go to a hundred fires a year and there's a guy in the Midwest who, who doesn't go to any fires, but we both get the same cancer and the common denominator right. is that we're wearing the same clothing. I mean, it's basic. Right. Do we need like a 20 year study to prove that? Or can right. we just no, we don't. Preum- the, presumptively cover it? No, like, the, the problem is, you know, Diane Cotter, I don't, I don't know if you listened to her episode, but she doesn't have the money that DuPont does. And, and, yeah. and, as we know, money in Washington walks, which is right. what makes what we did even more amazing is that we went into these offices without a checkbook and and got them to yeah. listen. I mean, Mr. Stewart helped with that, but but it's incredible that it even took him. It's, it's I think actually one of the reasons I think the public really seized on this story is because it was one of the few examples you get of like citizen activism really working. Yeah. You know, so often you just hear that like big moneyed interests are just like out there ruining your lives, which they are. But um, but this was like a great story about how all of the things that you are told, even though, you know, the obstacles are greater for regular people, of course. And like, you know, the the pushback is greater. Um, but this was like a story of regular people just like going to Washington and just persistently returning until they got what they wanted. And you so rarely get that as a public narrative. And it. I think because of that was sort of, you know, it it was sort of inspiring for people because I think that for a long time, you're just taught this kind of activism doesn't work. And sometimes it doesn't, but also sometimes it does. Well, I I think people give up and they make it very difficult to go to Washington and walk. Oh yeah. You need need the resources to do it. You need the health to do it. You know, I mean, think about like, I remember, you know, when I first came down to Washington, the first group of responders I came down with, like almost none of them were healthy enough to return in 2019. No, I mean, it was a completely different group of people. Mm-hmm. And I, the very few people that remembered me from that, you know, early, that first 2009 trip that I took with responders were, you know, were people who had not been sick in 2009, but they were right. sick when 2019, you know, it's, right. it, it's a sort of alarming how long that went on, but also kind of wild that people just kept coming because people kept getting taken out of the, you know, taken out of commission by their health issues and still more people would come. Right. Which is, I think, well, that was I, my fuel for going was that I didn't want anyone else to have to do it, especially exactly. you and, and your demographic. I mean, I'm technically not a millennial, uh, I'm, I'm, but I'm not far just, off. I'm in that. Just barely. They call us like Xennials. We're like in the middle. Um, yeah. But, but I'm certainly if you're going by the data we have, I'm at the bottom of I'm the closest right. that you're going to get to your demographic. I think the average first responder age was 35 and I was 21. Yeah. So that's much closer to your demographic than I was to right. the one I was operating in. Um, just wanted to get that in there, even though I have <laughs> some gray in the beard. Uh, 
No, I you're very have, useful. You're very useful. I also useful. have two daughters. So, <laughs> um, but let's get back to 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 what's uh, grinding my gears yes. is that they keep bringing this shit up, um, yeah. and this was something that struck me. And I'm not going to name names. I generally don't get political on the show, but I don't know if you remember this. But and be, to backtrack, if you've heard John Stewart's awesome uh, speech before Congress from 2019, Lila also spoke at that hearing. Um, so keep keep going back on the YouTube button and listen to Lila because right. she was also inspiring. Not as funny, but also inspiring. You know, you can try, but 9/11, it's a tough one. Yeah, he still managed to get some zingers in there, though. I know. I don't know how he does it. That's why he's him. Um, right. But we were when we were in the the conference room before that hearing uh it was me you mike john and a few other people yeah but somebody from our side came in and and said you know our goal here is to get this pushed through in december i don't know if you i don't know if you were yeah. listening because you were you were kind of in the zone <laughs> um because i was trying to like because everyone was in the zone john freaking stewart was crying i don't know if you remember but he was oh crying. yeah i know and everybody was nervous Everyone was acting weird. Like right. John Feel gave me like a coin at one point that was like a commemorative coin. And that's all I remember from that meeting from that conference room was getting this coin. I still don't know what it was. I don't remember anything uh, about yeah, it. I know. So I was I was trying to like muster my best uh, Newt Rockney Ray Pfeiffer speech and try to get everybody <laughs> going. But somebody walked in and was and said basically like, you know, our goal here is to get this bill passed in December and I remember me and Stuart looking at each other and we were, at the same time, we were like, why? Right. Why aren't we looking to get this bill passed tomorrow? Like, why are we waiting to December? And, and, and this and, is in June. We're talking about Ju with June. This, this committee and this meeting is, uh, the, uh, this hearing right. is happening in June. So. You know, and, and I don't have to tell you what was happening. You know, the program, <laughs> you know, people right. were going crazy. And, and ever since then, I've just been thinking, you know, and I look back on it and I'm like, you know, there, there are a lot of people who have benefited from this fight taking 20 years um, yeah. on all sides. I think, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that we kept getting five year bills benefited everyone because yeah. it come, look, midterm elections are coming up. And look, look, what's the story? Exactly. The 9-11 health fund needs fucking money. So you don't. I, I don't know, man. I, I, I don't even know how to feel about it. I just feel like. Like we got played again. Well, I, I sort think of. That's kind of like how, you know, I mean, I think one thing I learned from being involved in this is that that is how Washington operates. And it was helpful to when I finally realized that I stopped having expectations that were out of line with what, you know, I, I started thinking, OK, how will this serve the people that are advocating for this bill on the hillside? Like what what do I need to tell them to make them able to tell a good story about this bill, which is, I think, a different mentality than I went in with where yeah. I went in thinking this is just. They beat and then down. I heard that, you know, then then I was overlooked at every turn because no one wanted to hear from the community. And then, you know, I, I sort of the only secret power I had in that effort because a lot of community members got essentially disinvited from coming to the hill because the the imagery wasn't you know what they what people wanted um it was literally just because i was so, <laughs> you know it was just because i was so young and so you know but, me walking in with a bunch of first responders is a very different image than just like an adult from the community walking in with a bunch of first responders i i sort of realized that my theater my theatrical uh presence was sort of more important than the content a lot of the time uh yeah yeah <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's all theater. It's all I, 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 no, I know. I, I, I felt exactly the same way, which is before we started recording, 
what we were saying is is kind of this the sense of of duty to do it because yeah. because you get the microphones uh, exactly this, this is what people we're the people that that they want to hear from and so unfortunately we have to keep talking about it but for the record a lot of times when I got asked to do interviews I tried to push you first but I I was gonna say I, I you, always you preferred wanna... you to speak. You're one of the people that I feel like was the most gracious about making sure that the survivor story got its airing when we were on the Hill together. I think I I really appreciate everyone on the responder side who made sure that every time that they were in front of a microphone, that they pushed me or a community member in front of the microphone as well. Cause you know, it's, it's tough going cause our story doesn't have the same like American hero vibe to it. And so, I mean, I often call this but like wartime framing. Well, that's, I, 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 I think, think it's even more so than I, I was doing my job. You, right. You, I, you people, everyone, the people who came from all over the country, that's the American story. Right. Well, that's, I never understood. I mean, I do understand. I, I understand in retrospect why we were sort of, why no one really knew what to do with our story. I think, you know, there's, there's this sort of tendency to want to frame any story about a huge crisis as being about heroes and villains. And so, you know, you had the villains cause you had the terrorists and you needed the heroes and someone like me doesn't make a, you know, doesn't meet the sort of American imagination, imaginative definition of what a hero is because heroes look like soldiers or look, you know, look like the people right. that we grew up sort of, you know, the, the, the politicians we grew up thinking were, you know, fighting for the American people or whatever, they don't look like young women. And I think that's problematic for a lot of reasons, as you can imagine, right. but that's I mean, podcast, right. It's a totally different <laughs> podcast. Um, but because of that, you know, it was really hard to convince media that like there was a narrative around this that actually was relevant to most Americans. Anyone can be the victim of a huge environmental crisis or an act of violence at any time. I mean, look at what, you know, we have school shootings happening all over the place. Teenagers all over the country experience, you know, acts of mass violence and become, you know, forever victims of that kind of terror. People all over the country experience various kinds of environmental crises, you know, whether that's a a big factory next to you exploding or something like that, or just a tsunami coming in, coming for your home. I mean, everyone can relate to the fact that like you can lose everything, including your health at a moment's notice. So the idea that we have no like fixed narrative in the media that can speak to that and instead sort of like, you know, have to kind of turn every story into a story of heroes and villains is so fascinating to me, but it was something I had to kind of learn to work with on the Hill because that's what we do. (laughs) That's how it is. Right. And and, and I I think that's why we missed the point on what heroism is. I think totally, you know, we, because personally, I think people like you are the heroes, the people that, Oh, thank you. <laughs> no, because look, I might get in trouble for saying this, but people, <laughs> people look at, look at us like, you know, let's just take our group. For example, they look at the imagery. They don't look any, anything past, past that or the uniform or the, you know, the FDNY hat. They, they, some meetings that was all that that they heard or saw they didn't hear the words they didn't hear the stories they just oh there's a there's a fireman in a wheelchair all right right that uh, looks pretty bad that that looks right right. (laughs) like we don't dig deep enough to find to see who the you know the the true heroes are in, in in not just our country but the world you know i think 
Well, I think to that end, I mean, one it's, one strategy I talk about a lot in my book because it was so effective when I was on the Hill was, you know, and one of the reasons I really liked going down, you know, with responders in particular is because when we would go and have meetings on the Hill, no one would listen when I was talking in the meeting. Like the staffers were basically like on their phones tuned out. And so what we would do is I would tell my story and then like every responder in the room would basically like echo it, like repeat it. Right. Because that was how the, that was how you got them to listen is if it was coming from somebody with an FDNY hat, then suddenly yeah. they were like, oh, that's a sad story. Whereas if it was just coming from me, they would be like, well, we can't hear her, her voice for somehow is at a pitch. We just can't hear. Like, uh, that's so frustrating. I, I don't know why you and I, I don't even think we ever took any meetings together, which no, I think I is, think is we, a crime because that we just we did appearances together. Right. Um, <laughs> I know I we would have had was, good meetings together. Right. I guess it was strategic. But to Lila's point. That's why it was done that way. They split us all yes. up to make sure that Lila had had first responders there with her too. Right. You always when I the one of the most rewarding moments of my time in 2019 was because I had because I knew this, I was always like, okay, I'm basically here to lobby responders. I'm not really here to lobby the, you know, the politicians because they don't listen to me. But I'm here to lobby as many first responders as possible to make sure that when they go into their meetings, they always mention the community, yeah. they mention students, they mention kids. And so in 2019, the very first meeting that I kind of crashed because it was just in the hallway and I was just like looking for some people from feel good to like find so I could find who I was going to go around with. Um, I heard somebody telling my story to somebody else without knowing that I was there because, mm -hmm. you know, his back was to me as he was right. taking the meeting. And I was like, well, I've done it. I right. <laughs> this is a, this is everything I could have ever dreamed. Of. <laughs> like, yeah. Fine. Well, like I, I needed to be there when I wasn't there because I couldn't be everywhere. And that, you know, in 2019, that finally started to happen, which yeah. was amazing. That, that became one of our tactics. You know, I, yeah. I, I did most of my meetings with Tom uh, Wilson. Of we course. were like we, we were like a little tag team. And that was his point. Like he would always ask them how old they were, how old yes. they were on 9-11. And then imagine that 9-11 happened and they had to go back and sit in a classroom in the middle. Like he would like build them up to it. And then, I've heard him give that spiel also when he yeah. didn't realize I was listening. And I, yeah. I'm always like, well, I, you can be well, two buildings great, away. Here, Tom. <laughs> exactly. The loudest man on the planet. But <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. I've heard it down the hall as I was right. trying to find someone else's uh, someone else's office. But yeah, that's always really rewarding because I feel like that was, you know, and that was really the year that I felt like um, instead of just being the survivor who was coming along that I, you know, really felt like we were part of a community that was advocating for everyone together, which um, I think because the VCF, unlike the health program, treats responders and survivors the same way, right. you know, the policies are the same for survivors and responders. Um, it, it's a, it's an easier program for us to approach as a full community. Whereas with the health program, they were always trying to kind of split us by, by being like, well, if we fund all these survivors, we won't have the money to help respond, which is not true, obviously, right. but and, you know, it was a divide and conquer strategy. And I, I, I think back to 2015, I was in my congressman's office, like and we were just hanging out, just me and him. Right. And he, he just kept. It kept uh, saying things like, you know, well, it's the most important thing is that we get the health care uh, bill passed. And then we were and, and I said to him, I said. That's not really true. I mean, right. the health care report is great, but but for the like for me, I, I was I worked for New York City. I have a pension, I, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not going to go hungry. But for all these other people who who are sick, who didn't work for a government agency and don't have a pension and now they can't work. And 
what good is, is. A, is, is getting screened once a year going to do? How is that going to, exactly. and they can't get life insurance and all the other issues that go along. And as you said, it's, it's a secondary insurance. So right. well, they don't even get, get screened once a year. They get screened once unless they're sick and then they right. get screened once a year, but you don't even, if you're sick with uterine cancer, it's not covered. So you don't ever get screened again. Like, right. But, and then how do you get a primary health insurance exactly. if you have uterine cancer? So it's, well, and that's, I mean, I really had to, you know, I think I had to really understand health insurance law in a way that I have never wanted to in order to um, work on this issue because so many of my initial concerns about my exposure were not even about my own illnesses because, you know, I've been asthmatic my whole life and certainly my asthma got much worse after 9-11 and required treatment I couldn't afford and, you know, required a bunch of stuff like that. But I also came to California where it was legal to reject people for pre-existing conditions from health insurance plans. And I couldn't buy health insurance. And I was like, there are so many sort of weird administrative obstacles that I'm having to navigate as a person who's not even that sick, that I can't imagine what my life is going to be if I have to live like this forever. Um, and I think, you know, there's sort of a little bit of blindness about what it is to be someone who doesn't have you know, employer provided insurance who doesn't work yeah. for the city um, and how many members of the community that were uh, affected are in a situation where not only are we, you know, we don't have pensions, we don't, you know, especially people my age, like right. we don't have pensions, our jobs don't provide health insurance. Like, but in addition to that, like we don't have any stability or guarantees that we will continue to have the few resources that we do have because we're just sort of like out here in the open market and the just general law is the only thing protecting us. Um, and so we, you know, we have sort of like greater Fair obstacles right. to overcome just to see doctors and find out we have 9-11 related conditions in the first place. Yeah, I don't understand that. I, 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 I experienced that a little bit. I remember I had uh, thyroid nodules, right? Well, I still have them. Mm -hmm. And the doctor said to me, well, if they're cancerous, they'll be covered. I was like, okay, well, how do I go find out if they're cancerous? Right. She's like, she's like, well, we can't do that. That's not covered. <laughs> you got to go to your own doctor. I'm like, this is the dumbest. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are we doing? I don't understand. Right. So now I got to go to another doctor, have my insurance covered. And then once then, then it's going to create the issue of, well, if it is cancer, now they're not going to pay for it anymore. So right. now what? So now I, I, I'm, no, to I'm have to constantly take financial risks just to diagnose I, yourself with the thing that's covered. Like, what kind of system is that? I, <laughs> I think yeah. the best way to sum up our country, especially our healthcare system, it's like trying to cancel a gym membership. Yes, that's a perfect analogy. I, I think that's just what they just wear you down and they just yeah. hope you give up and just keep sending them your money every month. Well, and this is what I, I feel like the thing that I'm really like... At, sort of passionate right now about imparting to people is that this, because of COVID, this could be any of us. Like, I think also a lot of people are like, yes. wow, Lila went through like a pretty bizarre random experience that, you know, had nothing to do with me because she was in New York on 9-11 and that's its own thing. But anyone can end up in the situation that the two of us ended up in by virtue of their own bad luck or just by virtue of living in America at all right now. Right. You know, I mean, poor government policy is one of the reasons that both of us have had COVID. Um, you know, the the sort of lack of control or the 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 lack of precautions, the lack of funding going towards making sure that there was adequate capacity for testing, all of these things are public policy decisions that are that could affect both of our health in the long term. And 
and could crop up at any time with, you know, significant, you know, uh, health difficulties that we didn't anticipate. And like, this is the situation now that like every single person in America is in. So like, I think it's important that people recognize that this story about, you know, this sort of like group of 9-11, you know, advocates who like went to Washington is not the only version of this story. Like this is currently directly relevant to every single person in America. And because of that, we should really think about whether we want to ask this much of victims. You know, this is so much to have asked of us. I spent I've, I spent my whole adult life just like wandering Washington, telling <laughs> people about 9-11. I mean, what a weird obligation to have been, you know, to have had. And, and you know, I felt that someone should do it. And I'm glad that I did it. You know, I'm happy that I'm happy the two of us were there to do it. But um, but I don't think that should have been our obligation in the aftermath of already experiencing something so traumatic. And I don't think the rest of America should have that obligation now. You know, I wouldn't wish that on other people. Well, so, I, th- I think that goes back to the leadership issues that we yes. mentioned earlier. <clears throat> you know, this this pandemic, you know, if, if it showed nothing, it showed that our leadership on all sides <laughs> sure is did. fucking terrible. You know, <laughs> we, we have people dying. We have all all this stuff happening around us and our leaders are on Twitter arguing with each other, trying to right. get zingers in there. You know, um, I remember Kristen and I were watching, you know, the insurrection last year, like everyone else was glued to right. the TV, glued angry, to the pissed off. And then these assholes come back and reconvene and they're all up there working on their tight five, cracking fucking jokes. Like, I know. why don't you just tell us that it's all bullshit and you don't give a fuck because that's right. exactly what you're saying. Yeah. It's, this has been a sort of, you know, the, just the entire COVID era, especially because there has been a, this has been the first time I think that I have seen like a need for clear action in decisive action for a sort of stretch of time where we're all dealing with the same emergency and like, it's like nowhere to be found. Like we just, we can't be bothered for some reason to take any decisive action towards a goal, you know, something that is truly affecting every level of society. I mean, it's well, that's because the leaders can can agree on what, right. what the problem actually is. And they can't agree. Well, right. They're not agreed on the problem. So the solution is a secondary conversation. They're, they're not they're, even ready to have. Right. We're nowhere near the solution. And, and you know, as well as I do, that that's not an accident. Um, yeah. No, that's what, it, well, I mean, and it's also I we've rehashed a lot of the conversations that we had after 9-11 that were all about symbolism anyway. I mean, I have really taken issue with the way children have been used as sort of fodder for symbolic acts of either defiance or care or whatever. And, you know, in, in COVID policy where I'm seeing the same arguments rehashed over and over without any consideration for what we're actually asking of children and asking of teachers and asking of school environments um, and what we're actually providing, you know, like I was told that I had to go back to school on October 9th because of my need for things to my routine, you know, my need for things to right. return to normal. And it's like, it's not normal to go to school after nine 11, three blocks from the world trade center. Right. Um, in, in a classroom that was used as a morgue. A week in a classroom that was used as a morgue, exactly. In a school that's not been cleaned. Right. And in, in that same way, it, and it might've been nice to have some kind of normalcy after that, but that just wasn't what was going to provide it. Um, and we hear that conversation, you know, being argued about children now needing to go back to school, but the schools aren't taking or given the budget to take proper safety precautions. And so all of it is just symbolism. It's all about whether we should defy COVID or, you know, cower from it. And none of it has anything to do with what we're asking of the children and asking of the people that are caring for the children, mm-hmm. which um, is a very frustrating thing to watch happen again after you've already been through it yourself. Right. And 
And especially when it's supposed to be our job is to. Right. And I don't get the arguments because you hear, you hear both sides like, well, we don't know the long lasting effects of the vaccine. So. Right. But, but we, we do know, know the, the long lasting effects of COVID that right. we know they're bad. <laughs> but I mean, we, we don't really know that either. We don't know that right. these kids aren't going to, you know, uh, two of my kids have had COVID and, and at the very least, I don't want to see them that sick again, whether right. or not it's, it's for the rest, it, it, it stays with them for the rest of their lives. Like. Absolutely. I don't yeah. I think we're really bad at uh, parsing the long-term consequences of a crisis in, well, in well, general. That's America. That's, America. Right. that's why that's we're, just like, we're all in credit card debt. And exactly. And because we don't think about tomorrow. It's like. It's today, today, that's it. Um, but yeah, that's, I, I think that that's maybe also an obligation that I feel, you know, to talk about the sort of experience of what it is to actually be a kid in a crisis like this, as opposed, you know, I know that the, you know, parents have need for childcare, which is understandable. And also people who don't have children, I mean, like myself, maybe don't have perspective on what it is to have that need for childcare. But I think a lot of the time when we have conversations about how we're going to address the needs of children after a crisis, no one really thinks about what the experience of the kids is going to be in the aftermath of the crisis. Like no one, people are not good at parsing the long-term consequences on the children themselves, um, which is something that at least I have experienced, you know, the, the one thing I do have experience with, because that's what I've had to devote my adult life to. Um, and it's frustrating to, to watch things break down uh, right. the way that but they have been. It also exposes the inequalities in our country. You know, Absolutely. we, we want to expect, uh, okay, well, well, let's send our kids home for remote learning, but what about all the kids who don't have Wi-Fi? Right. Um, you know, or, or live in government buildings where the Wi-Fi is is controlled by the building itself. And you know how that's exactly. half the time they don't have heat. Let alone. Or, or rely on school for their lunch because that's right. where they're getting a nutritious meal. I and, mean, and I don't know how <laughs> nutritious these meals are these days, but you know. That brings me, you know, and I think back to, to after 9-11 and the fire commissioner was, was telling the members to suck it up, uh, you know, because people were complaining about the air quality, whatever. However, yeah. his own son, who was a firefighter, he didn't allow him to go to ground zero and reassigned him to be his driver. Yeah. So, yeah, there you go. Like, so that, that, that's how the leadership in our country works. Um, yeah. You know, and, oh, speaking of which, have you seen uh, Rudy Giuliani's $911 t-shirts that he's selling now? <laughs> yes. Um, maybe those he, proceeds can go to uh, creating a, a... Gonna milk that America's mayor thing for... Right. As long as you possibly can. And just and the people who eat this up and they don't realize is that there's tens of thousands of people like you who are going to live the rest of your life with the consequences right. of his decisions and his poor leadership. Um, Absolutely. Everyone forgets that he was he was the most hated mayor in history on September 10th. Everyone hated I... him. I would, I, you know, because in, in writing my book, I had to kind of revisit the moments right before 9-11 and, you know, 9-11 itself was a primary day in the New York city mayoral race. And so nice. the entire, like I, I sort of revisited all the drama leading up to that week. Cause that was like the week where like all hell broke loose. And he like announced he was going to get divorced at a press conference and got kicked out of Gracie mansion. Like all of that happened <laughs> right before 9-11. Right. So he was like a joke in New York city on September 10th. Basically yeah. he was like the punchline of a joke. Um, and then, you know, I think 
the rest of America didn't know about the punchline part. And then they just met America's mayor on well, September 11th. And it was like they didn't realize that New Yorkers had been over him for a while. Right. And it's all because of the imagery and, yes. uh, you know, just the the photograph of him standing there in the dust. And, uh, you know, the fact that so many people bought into it, especially police and firefighters around the country, they did like what he did to to, to us in his terms. We, we're still right. trying to make up for it. he gave seven years of zero percent raises. I mean, no, there was a time where I think NYPD at your at the starting NYPD salary, you could qualify for food stamps like you could qualify for public assistance as a New York City police officer, which is like the right. most it's like an unconscionable breach of public trust to pay the sort of public safety forces so little that that we have to provide public assistance to them so that they can eat like what right. kind of, and, and and also what gets lost is the fact that he was wandering around with nowhere to go is because he decided to put the city's war room in, right. the, <laughs> in, world's the, world Trade number, in the world trade center, which was the number one terrorist target for, for two decades. I mean, well, when you have developer friends, you got to do what you got to do, you know? Right. You know, cause, <laughs> cause a, a park in Staten Island didn't make, uh, didn't make any sense, I guess, you know, he needed somewhere to hang out with his mistress. <laughs> It was a convenient train stop. <laughs> I don't know how we turned into Giuliani bashing, but uh, his t-shirt t-shirt yesterday just set me off. Like it, I know, me too. <laughs> I've been, I'm, I was waiting to see if you would bring that up. Uh, well, how could I not? Yeah. Um, so, all right. Well, Reed wrote Lila's book. Yes, some kids sure left behind. Some kids left behind. Um, Available at the various online bookstore places. If you want to hear places, if you want to hear more about this story, and I think maybe it's time we got a female John Stewart to come yeah. on and start pushing all the woman issues. Maybe Sam B's available. Uh, That's right. You know, it seems like something yeah, should be. Yeah, we're putting a call out right now. Yeah, Sam B. If Who you're is the female comedian <laughs> that's going to come and talk about women's health and disaster health issues? Right. Um, We'll give Call you. Us. A, We're here. <laughs> we'll, we'll spring for cheap motel rooms in Washington. Exactly. Um, you know. Uh, all right. Well, I'm glad we got to talk finally. Um, I hope everyone out there listening understands that uh, it wasn't just first responders uh, that are being affected by 9/11 and dying from 9/11. Um, you know, we get the press coverage, but there's there's ten times more people out there like Lila. Uh, dealing with these problems and they need our help too. So pay attention. We're going to revisit this. Lila is going to keep us notified of when, uh, when we need to break chops. But uh, right. so w w what's the next step with the, I, I, I read the study on the reproductive rights, but what's the next step on getting that covered? Yeah. So we're trying to get uterine cancer added to the list of covered conditions. There's very little data on uterine cancer in general. So not only is there not much data on its effect on 9-11 exposed populations, but no one actually knows what causes uterine cancer in the first place. And so we keep getting told that there's insufficient data. Yeah. It's the only major cancer that's not covered by the program. It's the only reproductive cancer that's not covered by the program. The idea that cervical cancer is somehow 9-11 related, but uterine cancer is not blows. <laughs> that's, that's, that's logically impossible. Um, so we're trying to essentially demand that the program extend coverage to all reproductive health conditions, especially women's reproductive health conditions. Um, and they are, that is under consideration by the science and technical advisory committee. And there's a petition in to the administrator, but we're trying to make sure that there's as much public discussion about it as possible so that there's public pressure um, when they do make that decision. 
it's been rejected something like six times. So it's never, it's a never ending parade of rejections over here on the women's health front, but we're hoping this time is different. Uh, this is anecdotal, but Cialis is covered by the program. So, well, sure. I mean, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> that, that doesn't shock me even one bit, which is a sad state <laughs> to report well, that I'm in. But I think that's another, uh, another symbolic, uh, American, uh, that's right. Cause. Cause right there. So, <laughs> all right. Well, Lila's awesome. Follow her on the socials. Uh, what are you yeah. at? Lila Nord- Nordstrom. I'm at Lila in Chelsea. At Lila in Chelsea. Um, you have your nerd uh, podcast. I have my elections podcast. <laughs> if, you, if you're a political wonk and you want to hear about uh, elections, we're at Brain Trust Live. Check that out. Um, and remember that the Firefighters podcast. Uh, we talk about everyone, right? We care about everyone. It's the job of firefighters to take care of kids like Lila, even though we're almost the same age. Right. Um, but that's what we do. And we want to give uh, give voices to everyone. Uh, so we're going to revisit this. And there is a connection between what Lila is saying and what Diane was saying about the chemicals, the PFAS chemicals in our bunker gear, because it's not just in our gear. Yeah. And all of Amer- America is going to deal with this, like we're like we totally. see in, uh, in Flint, Michigan. Um, there are environmental issues. This shit is in our water. It's in our clothes. Um, so you can't escape it. So you, you have to give a shit about this because it affects yes. all of us. Um, and that's our point. Absolutely. So Lila and I will be back in Washington at some point. Uh, of course. Uh, they always call us back. Right. Because apparently they, they're going to need more money or something. So, <laughs> But uh, till then, thank you for coming on. Try not to get COVID again. Um, God, I know. And, Thank uh, you for having me, though. I really appreciate this. Yeah, and I no, always appreciate awesome. your advocacy for survivors. Of course, man. That's that's if we, that's what we do. So yeah. we're all on the same team. That's right. All right, Lila. Thank you very much. And uh, be well. You too. And welcome back to Frankie's Firehouse Peace. Today's recipe is something from our family. It's called corn pudding, our Thanksgiving favorite. For this recipe, you'll need one can of cream style corn, one can of whole kernel corn and juice, one stick of melted margarine, one eight ounces carton sour cream, one box of Jiffy corn muffin mix. To start, I'm going to need my assistant, Daddy, to preheat the oven to 350. All right, preheating. (laughs) Next, we have to mix all the ingredients together in a bowl. Here's the bowl. First, the one can cream stock corn. Did you get it? (laughs) One can of whole kernel corn and juice. There's still two pieces more. The stick of melted margarine. The sour cream. Next, we need the Jiffy Corn Muffin Mix. 
the whole thing. There's still a lot in there. Mix it all together. You need some help with that, Frankie? You got it. <laughs> Want me to do it? It's really chunky. I can't get it all mixed. All right. Assistant. <laughs> so we mix it nice and good, right? It's color changing. It is. All right. Well, what's next? Both. Now, once all the ingredients are combined, you have to pour it to an eight inch square pan. Is that good? Mm -hmm. My turn. Alright, your turn. Alright. Now it's not chunky anymore. Ah! <laughs> it's all in the blue bowl and on the counter. I think it's good now. Right. It's good, good, so I pour it in. Alright. All right. The whole thing? The whole thing. Alright. We'll mix in there and spread out the corn, right? <laughs> Get a little, a little extra Frankie. It's more over there. Yeah, see that? More over there. More over here. More over there. More everywhere. There, here, there. Everywhere. <laughs> Alright. I think that's good. Mm hmm. Hmm. It's pretty good to me. Alright. So now that we're done mixing and pouring it into the pan, Daddy, my assistant, is going to put it into the oven. Can't hold it with one hand. I'm very strong. There we go. Now what? You gotta turn on the oven and it's bake open. it for one hour. One hour? Alright. See you guys in an hour. Okay guys, so we have one minute left until the corn pudding is done. And then we're gonna have to let it sit for 20 minutes. And my assistant, Daddy, will be taking it out of the oven correctly with two hands in the glove safety first right will be one sharing is caring three two one all right here we go uh, uh, too bright nope you hear rocky puppies in the hey, podcast get it on the green thing and i did it all by myself totally it's bubbling. Oh my god, it's moving. All right, guys, chow's on. Well, thank you, Frankie. Thank you for letting me assist you. Uh, you did a great job, and I can't wait to see what you have for us next week. Thank you to Lila. Um, keep doing what you do. Keep pushing for those, those women's studies. Um, I think it's a disgrace. How, how the women and the, the children and the survivors of 9-11 have been treated. Um, I don't see why they should be treated any, any less uh, efficiently as the first responders. You know, we, we were all there under the same pretenses. Um, might even be worse for them, you know. Not only uh, <laughs> was it a scary situation for kids to be sent back into, but it was dangerous uh, physically. You know, that, 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 that dust was blowing through those schools um, they were eating in that dust. Uh, you know, they weren't even allowed uh, breaks to go outside, but that wasn't even much better anyway. You know, being outside the building <laughs> might even have been worse. Uh, so, 
you know, those kids are having a tough time, uh, as you heard Lila explain. And and I'm going to bring you more on how we can help them um, because they're seeing the same issues that we are. And it's scary, you know. You know, on that note, just yesterday, the New York City Fire Department announced that retired EMS Captain Michael Early of Division 4 succumbed to his World Trade Center illnesses. Uh, this is not anything new. And, and if you heard my interview this week uh, with Pete Dominic, you, you, you heard my outlook. You know, I don't, I don't expect to live very long. Um, I don't say that to be doom and gloom. I say that matter-of-factly because I think it'd be irresponsible of me to think that I'm going to have been dealing with these illnesses, you know, the top four or five illnesses uh, in the program for all these years and not eventually get cancer or, or just have my immune system give out or, or die from some other illness. Um, I think it would be, be foolish of me to not think that way. Um, so I try to think rationally about it. I don't, I try not to let it, you know, rule my life and I, I, I don't sit around thinking about it, but, but if you're going to ask me, sure. Yeah. I mean, it'd be foolish. Um, you know, we're dying, uh, at a rate of like two or three a week at this point, you know, and, and with my work with the Ray Pfeiffer foundation, um, I'm seeing it more, obviously I can't get into detail, but we have to read these applications from these people. And more often than not, I, I know the name at the top of the, at the page and and it's hard. So it's hard not to think that, that eventually it's going to be my name up there. Um, and I think that's how we all feel. You know, I remember Ray saying that, um, all those years ago before Congress that, that there's not a, not a person who stepped foot on that hollow ground that doesn't believe they're going to die of cancer. Cause it's just, it's just happening all around us. Um, so we do what we can to help who we can. And, uh, right now I think we owe it to the kids. Um, you know, it, it, it's our responsibility, not, not as first responders, but, but as the adults, uh, who were supposed to be taking care of them and making the right decisions for them all those years ago. Uh, and we didn't, and we let them down and we continue to let them down. Um, and that needs to change. So Sam B, if you're out there listening, uh, I'm calling on you. Uh, I think you're great. And I think we could use a voice like yours to step up for these women, um, who are dealing with all these reproductive issues and these cancers and they're being ignored and we need somebody to, uh, to get some attention. Um, you know, uh, like John did uh, so beautifully. Uh, so we could use your help. So if you're listening, hit me up on the Twitter, uh, reach out to Lila, any of us, we would love your help. Also recently, uh, as we've talked about in past episodes, uh, the PFAS chemicals in our bunker gear that is killing firefighters and giving us cancer. Uh, so recently a report came down from Dr. Graham Peasley from Notre Dame, who we talked about with Diane. Uh, that says that there's one to two pounds of PFAS chemicals in each set of bunker gear. Not good. So we're going to get it back on top of this issue uh, in the coming episodes. And we're going to be beating that drum. Uh, that, that drum's going get, to get beat a little loudly. It's, it's uh, Firefighter Cancer Awareness Month. Um, cancer is the number one line of duty killers of firefighters. Um, you know, this week aside, obviously, but, but you know, just, just statistically, that's what's killing us. And we know why. The government knows why. Uh, and as always, we're going to have to go down there and, and stick microphones in their face and, and punch through doors 
and get loud um, because that's the only way they hear us, right? That's what worked. Uh, as you heard Lyle and I discuss, uh, sometimes that's what it takes and sometimes that's what you have to do and you can't give up uh, because that's what they're banking on. They, you know, <laughs> as we said, they, they kind of wait you out and they hope that you just run out of steam um, or there's nobody left to fight. But there's too many of us. Uh, our voices are too loud. And we have the support of the entire country because everybody wants to see us uh, succeed and stay healthy and, and continue to do the job that we love, which serves them. You know, it makes us all feel better and feel safe, um, as it should, because cause we have uh, just over a million people in this country willing willing to sacrifice themselves for the greater good. And that's a beautiful thing. And that's something we need to take care of and embrace uh, and make sure that those men and women are going to work uh, knowing that they have the safest gear possible, knowing that every time they put on that gear to run into these burning buildings, it's not going to kill them. Uh, the buildings are, more, are dangerous enough, right? So what are we doing? What are we doing? Let's get that shit out of our gear. Let's find another way. You know, fires, before these chemicals were created, fires still went out, right? Before... Before we started making this 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 gear that can withstand thousands of degrees, um, fires went out. You know, I know as I said before, they they're burning hotter, but you know, at at what cost? At what cost are we going to keep strapping this stuff on? You know, um, you know, I I think it bears repeating that politicians really don't care unless you force them to care. You know, they, they, they can make great speeches and they can, you know, have great photo ops. But when it really comes down to it, they don't care unless they have no choice, unless it's going to affect uh, them at the polls or in their pockets. Um, for the most part, you know, I don't like to paint everyone with the same brush, but in my experience, most of them don't give a shit. And, you know, to that effect, the amount of theater that goes on in this country um, and the, the feigned outrage by these so-called leaders um, is what's bringing it down. You know, uh, there's, <laughs> there's no authenticity amongst these people. Um, you know, we got a little bit into it in this episode about what, what real leadership is, but real leadership is, is not acting like, like a J.O. on Twitter, right? Real leadership isn't, isn't cursing. Uh, you know, members of Congress are cursing at each other publicly. Uh, what's going on? Why is that okay? Why are we allowing this to be to be acceptable? I remember I, I went to the State of the Union in to 2020, I guess it was, you know, right before uh, all this shit got shut down. And, you know, the one where, where, where Nancy Pelosi famously uh, ripped up uh, the speech and... and whatever. Um, but one thing that stood out to me was, wasn't what happened during the speech. It's what happened before, you know, we went, we went to all the cocktail parties and there were members of both parties that I'd, I'd seen the day before, uh, you know, having Twitter beef or, or publicly shaming each other. And then there they are at these cocktail parties, raising a glass, chuckling, uh, having a drinks, having a good time, uh, you know, and then we go into the chamber and it's more of the same. Everyone's high-fiving, smiles. And uh, then all of a sudden, you know, when, when it's time to turn the cameras on, it, it, it's like a, a, somebody flipped a switch. 
It's like uh, Vince McMahon came in and started telling everybody what their role was going to be because, you know, all of a sudden the room split up into uh, red and blue. Uh, you know, the faces changed, the smiles went away, and they all started acting like they hated each other again. Um, but what stood out to me was that before the cameras were on, uh, there was one team, uh, not two. And, and guess what? We're not on it. Um, so we need to wake up a little bit. You know, everyone likes to say, uh, <laughs> everyone likes to say, uh, you got to pay attention and all that stuff. But, but if you're, you can pay attention, um, even if you know what's happening, that's not going to change anything. So paying attention isn't enough. Got to speak up. We got to demand more. We got to demand better. Um, if you want an example of what I'm talking about, look no further than America's mayor hawking $911 autographed 9-11 t-shirts with his fucking radio station. You might have noticed I've cursed a lot more in this episode, and this is why. This is a guy who went on TV a week after 9-11 and told the people of New York that the air was safe to breathe and even mocked us for thinking it wasn't. And when all that uproar was going on with inside our department and people were saying, well, this is messed up. There's something's not right. You know, when, when, when the fire department is sending in inhalers to every member without even seeing a doctor, you just got, showed up at work. There was a freaking inhaler in your locker. You tell me they didn't know something was going on. And now this guy, after all his disgraceful behavior since then and before then, has, has the cuyones to go out and profit off of what's happening to the 9-11 community. It's a disgrace. Every single dime that he makes off those t-shirts should be taken away from him and, pay, and used to pay for the funerals of those of us who keep dying once, twice a week. That's where that money should go. And he should just go away in shame. I have no faith that the legal system in this country is going to do the right thing because it never really seems to, right? No one's ever happy with, with, with the way uh, uh, the legal system handles things. Do I know how to fix it? No. I'm a retired fireman. I, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a lawmaker. But I can see something's wrong. We, you could see something's wrong, right? And we allow this to happen. We allow this guy, there's a radio station out there that gives this guy a microphone and lets him talk. And produce these t-shirts for him, WABC. Produced the t-shirts with his picture on it. And he signed it as we're dying from cancer, from his lies. Does anyone give a shit? Probably not. Am I screaming it to the void? I don't know. Because this shit still happens. No matter what we say, what we do. We let these people get away with it. And that's on us. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be so angry. But how could you not be when you see that guy doing that? Where was he for the 20 years that we were fighting for health care? He was our boss. He told us the air was safe to breathe. He backed up what Christy Whitman said and the EPA said. Why? 
Who profited more off 9-11 than Rudy Giuliani? Who? I'll wait. All right. Well, that's it. Hopefully next week we'll have some happier things to talk about. Maybe some hockey games. Oh, we got Henrik Lundqvist night coming up tonight. Your man will be there. Give me something to be happy about, something to smile about. So uh, look out for me on the socials on that. Thanks for listening. Subscribe now at thefirefighters.us. Join the squad at patreon.com slash thefirefighterspodcast. We're powered by Righteous Media. Next time you're on social media and you're about to uh, write something that's not helpful, I want you to think about it. Think about what you're doing. Think about what you're putting out into the world. And then think about what you want to get back. That's it. Stay low, my friends. Powered by Righteous Media.